Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor. And I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. In today's episode, we talk about the suddenly hawkish RBA, the rise and fall of Culture Kings, and the dominance of Google. And we're back, episode 15, on time, unlike last week, which is, which is, a, which is a positive start. So I've had a lot of feedback idea that people were pretty angry that we didn't get the episode out on time last week, but you had a, a reasonable, reasonable excuse. Uh, you're still in Tel Aviv, I believe. I'm still in Tel Aviv. I'm again in the offices of Multiply Me, same as last week. I don't mind that people are angry. Like it's better than indifference. I told you, like I just hate indifference. So you can love you can love me or you can hate me, but just don't be indifferent. So I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm still in Tel Aviv. I think most people most people love you, I think, is certainly the feedback I get. Oh, I can so, introduce um, I can I can introduce you to some people if you want to if you want the rebuttal of that. <laughs> my, uh, I know my family can't wait to meet you. I, I was speaking to my sister and my dad separately were saying, Oh, when are you doing the live show? I said, Oh, We'll get it done soon. They go, oh, I can't, I can't wait to meet our dear. <laughs> was the was is the common refrain. Well, uh, you got to damp down their expectations of me, but I do like that they're lobbying for the live show. Which you know, I've I've received so many messages about it. I did a poll on LinkedIn, like a hundred and something people in Melbourne, and like I don't know what it was, fifty or something in Sydney said that they would come to a live show. So my maths on that is. You discount that by fifty percent, and then add another hundred people that you know didn't respond to it, and whatever it is. And so, there's uh, the numbers are going to be good. We got to make it happen. We will. We will. Uh, obviously, we can't make it happen while you're in Tel Aviv, though. So, can you tell me right, what's? Right. Um, we obviously spoke about it last week, but but what's it like there? So obviously, had some fantastic news with hostages released in, in the last week so far. So, can you tell? Has the mood? improved on that with that and there's obviously a ceasefire currently could, could change by the time this episode's released but currently there's a ceasefire and hostages are being released which is which is great news well i tell you the first thing is you cannot tell the difference between the current time and a normal time but when you try to get a table in a restaurant or cafe in because <laughs> you can't get one so it's but basically the city continues to be pumping the difference is there's no t- tourists here at the moment but um but people are going out now i understand you know until two weeks ago, that wasn't the case. There was frequent rockets and there were other sorts of uh, issues. And also, it's hard to get staff because people are called up. I'll tell you what I think the biggest differences are that I've noticed between now and a regular time. One is there aren't many more soldiers on the streets of Tel Aviv. Like There are definitely some more, but there aren't many more. But I tell you what you do see. What you see is lots of people in civilian clothing, like out on a Saturday night or out just some night, like men, women of various ages and just slung over their shoulder is like an assault rifle. And the reason for that is that they obviously have come back from the border somewhere or back from fighting and their weapon is their responsibility and they've got nowhere to put it. They can't, you don't want, you don't want to let your weapon be out of like, you know, in an unsafe place because you're going to get jail time for that. And so they take it out with them. And so for someone that hasn't spent time here, if they were here now, I think they would find it quite disconcerting to see people like walking into a restaurant or cafe and a couple of them have got like assault mm. rifles slung yeah. over their shoulders. So that that's kind of more unusual at the moment. The other thing I'd say is that you can't escape this feeling around the hostages here right now. So wherever you go, there are installations 
posters that one area that I was walking down had um, these enormous stuffed teddy bears that had been painted to be covered in blood and on there, like the abdomen of the teddy bear was stuck a photo of a kid that is like held in Gaza at the moment. And those types of things are all over the city and they're unavoidable and they're, I think, happily inescapable. There was a rally yesterday of 100,000 people in a square that I went along to and like just for the hostages. So the hostages are very, very, very central to the psyche in this country. And the last thing is that when I speak to people who are uh, soldiers, and so I know quite a lot of, quite a few people here who are like what you'd call SAS type people, including, you know, we spoke to Lippy last week. Lippy's a very modest guy and he's not serving anymore for the reasons he told you, but, you know, he, he was in that category of that kind of soldier. And so when I talk to them, all of them have had friends that have been killed. As in killed in, in the Gaza um, theatre or killed on the 7th? Uh, so most of them have had people in their units that they were very close to killed in the war, predominantly responding to the invasion on the 7th of October because they had to race down and fight them. And you know Hamas had control of the roads into the south, and so it was very hard to regain control. It actually happened remarkably quickly, but... Unfortunately, like they will all have stories of people that they were close to, you know, them being killed, seeing them killed, trying to mm. stop them dying, like these really just horrible, sad stories. And so that you didn't hear those stories in this generation. You heard them in my parents' generation in the, from the wars, but now this generation has got those horrible, horrible experiences. So, you know, they're the main differences. But day to day here, there's a ceasefire. There's no sirens in Tel Aviv. Everyone's out. They're living their lives, but you know, no one thinks it's normal times. It's absolutely not normal times. I don't know. This is this could be the because we don't see news from everywhere. But the feeling I've certainly noticed in the last month or so is it seems like the Arab Street, and you're obviously not in a in, in an Arab country at the moment, but you're, you're sort of in the region. It feels like the Arab Street. Well, there are plenty of Arabs in the street here, as in, like you know, there's it's a mix. I'm not talking about Israel. Sorry, sorry, I'm not talking about Israeli Arabs. Yeah, I'm talking about. Um, just the general, like, call it Egypt, call it yep. Jordan, call it Dubai, call it Saudi Arabia, call it the, the, the Arab Street inverted commas. Bahrain. It feels like there's, yeah, Bahrain. I feel like there's far more anger at at this war from call the useful idiots in in Harvard, Stanford, London, Melbourne, etc. Than there is in the actual Arab Street. Arab Street feels like they'd rather this be done with and get back to trading with Israel. I don't know if that's just wishful thinking or that's sort of how it feels. The way I tell you how I felt, well, this is one of the big things that I wanted to share with you. So this is how I felt since being here. Um, when I speak to Israelis and when I speak to soldiers that are in combat, 100%, I don't have a single exception, 100% of them have um, expressed how upsetting it is that there are all of these Palestinian civilians being killed. Some of them have told me stuff about how they very much avoid like um, uh, killing civilians wherever it's possible that I won't share because it's operational. But like, you know, um, that is this, this overwhelming sentiment of the Palestinian civilians are not the enemy. And, you know, it's heavily blamed on Hamas here. And I just feel like I want to take these people who I would call well-intentioned but naive, because, you know, there are just some, like, genocidal anti-Semites marching in Western countries, but there's also a ton of well-intentioned but naive people. 
And I would just like to bring them here and let them talk to Israelis and let them talk to soldiers and let them talk to the hostages' families and hear how much the people here just want peace and don't want to kill any Palestinians except Hamas. I really feel like it would be transformational in the way they see things because when you're on the ground here, there is absolute moral clarity. And by the way, this is also amongst the Arab population of Israel. There is absolute moral clarity on we just got re- got to get rid of these monsters. And then probably there's diversions in society about what to do next with regards to the Palestinians. But um, yeah, I, w- I wish that people could come here and experience it for themselves. That's, that's super interesting idea. And I think one other interesting point is you hear about the the death toll, and it's obviously released by Hamas. At, I think they're claiming fourteen. It seems to go up pretty regularly. They're claiming fourteen thousand, but I think the one thing that's forgotten is that fourteen thousand. Apart from the fact that it's probably highly inflated, but it includes enemy combatants. So they never delineate between actual fighters who are killed. In which case, obviously, there's, there's, I don't think even even the protesters probably don't have an issue there with obviously innocent civilians where where no one wants to see. So that's I think that's part of the problem is. Most of the mainstream media simply takes the Hamas death count as as fact, which is problematic. Agree. I think my guess would be five or six thousand at least. Of let's assume we just take the number at face value, which I, you know, obviously I concede your point that you are getting numbers from genocidal yeah. terrorists, so they may not be yeah. true. But let's say you even took that number. My guess is that five or six or seven thousand of them are probably terrorists at least because. There were 3,000 terrorists that flooded into Israel on the 7th of October. 2,000 of them were killed. So then there's these thousands more. So, yeah, yeah I think you're right about that point, absolutely. And the thing that's forgotten about, the 2,000 that were killed on, on the 7th, they're essentially suicide bombers in every in essence because they were never coming back. As soon as they sort of came in, they shut the border again on them. They were always – and they, a lot of them paraglided in, so you obviously can't get out there. So they were essentially – as good as suicide bombers, and that's another fact that's been forgotten about. Although a thousand made it back with hostages, True. right? That was True. the thing. Is you know, in the wash up of this, what what will be discovered? It's pretty obvious. Is that from a genocidal, anti-Semitic terrorist objective, this went much better than they could have ever hoped. They would not have expected this level of, um, you know, like Israeli res- limited Israeli response to their incursion. And so I think you're right. I think the expectation was that they would all die, and then it turned out that um, they didn't, that they took all of these. Uh, in, of these I don't know if you've seen the protests. There's been obviously still protests in Australia. Have you, has that, does Israel, do you see that in Israel? There was obviously the, the school protest uh, last week. Uh, does, it, does that get beamed back to Israel, or is it more just internal facing up there? It certainly has visibility here. One of the things that is known by just every Israeli that I've spoken to is that the fir- the beginning of this wave of you know almost unprecedented anti-Semitism in the last eighty years began at the Sydney Opera House? Like that is really well known here. So you know, there's no doubt that's a blemish on Australia. Here, Israelis are very aware of the protests that are going on in in Western countries, including specifically in Australia. They're very aware of the chants. They're very aware of the signs that are being held. They're all horrified by it has certainly solidified their view of the need for a Jewish homeland, as it has for many people. And, you know, what What it leads to is I was watching this, um, this like, kind of panel talk show late one night, and they had a segment which was like a street talk kind of segment, you know, going into the streets, and it's kind of got a comedy angle to it, okay? So it's very funny. But you know the question they were asking? 
why does the whole world hate the Jews? Yeah. That was the question on this show. And by the way, they couldn't work out the answer. Yeah. But it was, and you know, they had very funny responses. But, you know, th- this is Israelis. Like, yeah. They say things in a humorous way. But it was a very, very serious question. Like they are feeling, as everyone who is Jewish really is feeling, this global wave of hate. And it's not lost on them at all. Interesting. I've, I've been uh, sort of tangentially involved in a. Uh, there's, there's some people who've organised, I think there's a, there's a view in Australia that the business community hasn't come out particularly strongly defending against anti-Semitism. Uh, and there's been a group uh, led by Tim who runs Turo in Australia, who's obviously listened to the pod and, and a great guy. And he, he led it. Your your old friend, Alan, is also a lawn who's also a leader of, the, of, of it. Uh, and as, as this pod gets released, so will, so too will... will, will the, the press release and the statements, but there has actually been incredible support in the last week or two from the Australian business community uh, about this, which we hadn't actually seen, uh, which is really nice to see. And, and there's a depth of support, uh, and that, that matched actually a really interesting poll. Uh, you took, you mentioned how how I guess Israelis think that well, why does everybody hate Jews? They, they ran a poll. US has actually run consistently in favour of Israel. We expect that, but you sort of get the feeling in Australia that most people are taking the Palestinian side, so to speak, if there is a side in this. But they actually, I think it was, it wasn't you, Gov, it was someone, I think Resolve ran a poll and something like 31%, well, the vast majority of people were sort of didn't have a, have a view, interestingly. I think it was 68% had no view, 62% had no view. 31% effectively supported Israel and 7% supported the Palestinians, which is a really interesting number, I thought, of what was a reasonable sample size. Well, my number is, um, I, tell, I mean, my view on th- that poll Firstly, I would like a box that says, I support um, Israel, I support the Palestinians, and I want to wipe out Hamas for the benefit of both. I know that's a long that's a long yeah. answer to have on a poll, but like that would be the sure. box that I would tick. And you know, the two views that I've had about what's going on in Western countries, one is um, people that live in Australia have not had to fight and die for the base core values of being a free citizen in a Western liberal democracy since the end of World War II. I mean, but in World War II, we fought for it, and we fought for our lives in World War II, and the English and the Americans certainly did. And so what we can do now is move on to more sophisticated parts of improving society. Like, for example, whatever you thought about The Voice, The Voice is like some higher level of trying to engage in continuous improvement in Western liberal democracy. But where Israel sits on the timeline of Western democracy is they're still trying to fight and survive to be able to live in peace and freedom as a Western liberal democracy. And so I think that it's more accurate for people to think about Israel's response as akin to the West's response during World War II, when survival in this form of society was on the line. So I think that's the mistake a lot of people are making. The second thing is this, I just want to be able to engage with the Muslim population of Australia in a coordinated manner where we find the 80% of common ground that we have with these Australian Muslims who are here wanting to live a Western liberal values lifestyle. Yeah, they have their own cultural norms. That's fine. But most of them want to live the same kind of life as I want to live, and that is why they've moved to this country. And this is all being lost with this extremely vocal, ultra-aggressive, advocating violence minority. And so I think that 
there's an opportunity to kind of try to unify people more where we agree. I'll tell you something that happened to me in the last few days. I, I made this, uh, you know, my posts on LinkedIn are not, they're pretty much just supportive of uh, Western values more than anything else with regards to this issue. And I got this response back from a guy who I won't name. And he wrote this post publicly in response to, like he quoted my post and wrote these remarks that were ultra aggressive, including something that would have been verging on a death threat against me. And, you know, it was taken down by LinkedIn. But a fatwa. Well, let's not get carried away. But like, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know if he meant it or not. It just, it certainly read like that. And um, my view of that is, I just feel like the heat has been turned up so high that we have to turn it down and say, what do we all agree with? Like, what we agree with is we want the more countries to live as under Western liberal values as much as possible. And we're going to disagree on some of the detail. And if actually you succeed with your from the river to the sea and wiping out the Jews from Israel and you make it a Palestinian state, it's not going to be an Australian Palestinian state. It's going to be like an Iranian Palestinian state. That's what you're going to end up with. And nobody wants that for the Palestinians. And so I think we just have to go back to some core values and find common ground in this issue. I think that's what the Abraham Accords are about. And that's what the Saudi normalization was about as well. It was about Israel and, and many of these Arab countries effectively making peace like they did with Jordan and Egypt decades ago. And, it, and I actually think I'm actually fairly optimistic uh, that the Arab Street, I was talking about before, the Arab Street is not done with the Palestinians, but I think wants to move forward. Uh, everybody wants the Palestinians to have a much better life than they've had. I don't think anybody sort of thinks they've had it, had it easy. Uh, but I think everybody wants normalisation with Israel now. I think not everybody, but most of the Arab countries now want normalisation. It's really just Iran is one of the few sort of outliers there. Best outcome at the end of this, new government in Gaza, new momentum with peace, new government in Israel, recast the whole paradigm and hopefully can live in a safe and peaceful region for all of the people that live in this region. I mean, Israel is already talking about a heavily modified version of the Palestinian Authority running Gaza as a demilitarized state. That would be a sensational outcome in my personal view. And the fact that Egypt has said that is a reason for optimism. But first, this war has to end. And, you know, there is still a pretty significant risk of a war in the north, which will be a much worse war. There is a significant risk of direct Iranian involvement. Like, there's still there's still months to play out in this war. On that note, we'll move on to our second story after a super quick break. So, idea, what do you think of the challenge of hiring developers and product managers these days? Oh, I think um, that's got to be one of the toughest parts of, uh, of growing a business, especially with the uh, demand for talent at the moment. I couldn't agree more, and that's why at Luxury Escapes, we boost our onshore team with developers from Petona, a fully Australian-owned and managed platform that was built to help businesses scale up with less capital, ultimately getting profitable faster. With Petona, they'll help you scale or build your team with incredible talent in places like Sri Lanka, Philippines, or India via a permanent remote staff or contractors. So should I assume that based on um, your enthusiasm, you've been working with Petona and you like them? I actually used to be really skeptical of hiring any developers offshore, but the beauty of Petona is it's owned and operated by Australians and led by Simon Lee, who's built and scaled multiple tech businesses. So you can really trust them to find great talent. We actually started with just a couple of resources and scaled to more than 15 team members. 
So Patona are perfect for businesses looking to scale. If you're pre-product, they're probably not for you. But they work with smaller businesses as well as big enterprise clients, including Treasury Wine Estates, Accolade Wines, Luxury Escapes, of course, Little Birdie, Impos, and Old Sale. If you're struggling to find and scale a tech team, then go to the Patona website at patona.com.au and click on Get Started. And for our next story, we have the recent comments of RBA Governor Michelle Bullock, who has suddenly turned hawkish, telling economists this week that the bank's statutory objectives are economy-wide outcomes, and our key tool, the interest rate, is a blunt one. She noted that the remaining inflation challenge we are dealing with is increasingly homegrown and demand-driven. Bullock, it seems, is a listener of the contrarians, because she finally conceded what we talked about months ago, idea, and that's the excess cash in the economy is driving inflation, and it wasn't being driven by stuff like overseas factors or greedy corporations. And Bullock herself noted hairdressers and dentists, dining out, sporting and other activities the prices of all these services are rising strongly. Adir, what do you think the RBA will do about inflation and interest rates? A lot of observers think there's one more rise in them, but given the recent hawkishness of Bullock, there could be a few more. Uh, what do you reckon? Do you think we're in for a continued period of interest rate pain, as the pundit suggests? So I've often thought, what would um, things look like if you were the governor of the RBA after you? Because, you know, you make these very sophisticated comments about this. By the way, I don't want to um, like deflate your tyres on this, but it's very unlikely you're going to get appointed to I that. I think that's highly <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> However, you could be appointed to it and it would be a sensible move because if you were the um, governor of the RBA, where we would be sitting now, you tell me if you disagree, I think where we would be sitting is Inflation under control, high interest rates, and a recession of some sort. Uh, I think that's probably well. You agree with that? I think that's probably right, but it depends on how you. Def- We're actually technically in a recession on a per capita basis. So if you if you factor out the in, in population growth, we are in recession. But if you ask most people, not most, if you ask a good chunk of the people in society that they're not even noticing it, it's been felt by a, a smallish cohort of call it people with large mortgages and, and renters. Yeah, and so what I mean is, so we, we would be some level of deeper in that recession because we would have been pushed there by higher interest rates. But your views, like which are legitimate, are that inflation it hurts people, many more people than a recession. And that's true as long as people are not losing their jobs en masse in a recession. Like 10% unemployment would start to feel pretty dire for especially lower income earners. However, I, I think she might be coming around to your view and one of the reasons that she might be coming around to your view is because of this idea of the soft landing that seems to be a very widely held idea. And so I think that the RBA is able to convince themselves, perhaps rightly, that they can jack up these interest rates more aggressively, smash inflation, and still have a soft landing for the economy. Now, I don't know if that's true. Like, it's good in theory, but it's a bit like, remember that guy that, um, you'll, you probably remember his name, that had a had a malfunction on the plane and had to land the plane in the Hudson Sully, River. Sully, I think his name was. Sully, yeah. that's right. So Sully, Sully, he achieved a soft landing. <laughs> the and if you ask on people, the yeah, and if you, but if you say to people, what do you think about that landing? Pilots will say, maybe they won't say it's one in a million, but yeah. they'll say it's one in a thousand. And not many people could have done it. Yeah. And he got very lucky. And so I think that's what the RPA might try to do with the Australian economy, in in my view. And so it could work. 
But I definitely feel like, you know, the data that was released that I think we spoke about, which um, which demonstrated that Australia is having, you know, in the OECD, maybe the greatest erosion of valuation of a dollar out of any OECD currency. Like, um, that's very problematic, and I think she's caught on to that and feels she has to respond to it. The dollar's good. We'll get to the dollar in a second, but I think there's actually a step. I don't mean the exchange rate. I oh, mean okay. the inflation eroding Standard, the value yeah. of what you can Got buy it. with the dollar. Yeah, yeah, which also the exchange rate is part of that, incidentally. But yeah. I think if you take a step back, I think there was if you look at sort of coming out of COVID, I think governments were aware of what they did during COVID and, and was creating all that debt. They printed a bunch of money. Remember that the Reserve Bank effectively, and they did this in the GFC as well, they gave the banks effectively a discount on the lending rate. So all these big banks, and Macquarie as well, so called the big five, got were able to borrow at 0% or close to 0% and lend it at 3 or 4%. And the banks were printing money for a couple of years, as in printing profits for a couple of years. So there was that. There was all the hundreds and hundreds of billions of fiscal stimulus during COVID. So I think the US was obviously the same. Europe was the same. I think the governments understood and there was a tacit understanding that we need a, the only way we can reduce this debt is by inflating it away somewhat. And there hadn't been inflation. The last 10 years before that, so from GFC to 2020, we'd seen a period of really low interest rates, but all the inflation had, had uh, gathered in asset prices, so housing prices, and all these assets had gone up. And because people are generally pretty stupid, people are happy when asset prices go up. It, I never understand why people are happy when that, the price of that principal residence goes up because all you have to do is pay more tax and pay more uh, stamp duty on your next property. Unless you're an, if you're an invest, if you own investment properties, then yeah, it's great if property prices go up. But if, if you don't own investment properties, it's bad. But people are always, for some reason, happy when the value of the asset goes up. But so, so what happened is all these assets have gone up for the, the decade before COVID, and then there's all this debt after COVID. So the government's thought, oh, we need to get some inflation to, to reduce the value of these debts because the one there's three ways to pay back debt for governments. There's inflation. There's raising taxes or there's defaulting. They're the only three ways you can get rid of these debts. And the, the last two aren't great. So they thought, oh, we can inflate them away. So they, remember they called inflation. Well, you can't even raise you can't you can't raise taxes enough no, you can't, to pay down. You can't, or cut spending. Like yeah. it's just not it's just not yeah. possible. So governments yeah, thought let's, let's creep a little bit of inflation in. They had this ridiculous two percent target. Two percent actually two percent inflation for hundred years gets rid of like ninety eight percent of the value of a dollar. So that's actually bad, but people are too stupid to realize that. But so instead governments Said okay, instead of two percent, let's maybe five, four or five percent. Okay, they call it transitory. Remember, for about six months they were calling it transitory. Then it hit like ten percent in Europe and the US. They go, oh, bloody oath, this is actually too much. And then you get revolution. So the US quickly slammed on the brakes, and, and Jerome Powell finally woke up and raised interest rates. And it's taken now, and, and uh, you've heard me banging on about it every week for the last two months, and, and for the last six months in my writing, that the RBA never took it seriously. They were still well below the rate of inflation. And you're never going to bring inflation down unless you're getting rates above it. So I think Bullock's finally getting it now. And Australian inflation is still at well above 6%. It's, it's high. It's way higher than the US. So mm-hmm. I think she's finally doing a job and and good on it. And nothing better than some- Can I just say something about your yeah. point? Because I think your point is extremely smart and sophisticated. And I just want to say it in simplified terms. So what you're saying is if I owe you a dollar, let's say $1, and we live in a country that has 100% inflation, like Argentina would be an example of that, then at the end of the year, effectively, the amount that I'm paying you back, although it still says $1, is actually worth closer to $0.50 cents 
And that's because my earning power has hopefully doubled, although in the real world, it's not doubling with the level of inflation. That's why it's a disaster and leads to revolutions. But, um, but everything should be worth less in the economy such that my $1 that I owe you, I can earn for the equivalent of what it would have take to earn, taken to earn 50 cents a year earlier. And so what you're saying is that governments looked at their debt and said, we're never going to be able to pay this back. We can't cut spending and raise taxes enough. It's just too big a number. And we also live in an era where, you know, the US is not intending to pay back its debt. It's just intending to reduce what percentage of the debt represents compared to its um, gross domestic product, right, GDP. It's looking at debt to GDP or GDP to debt ratio. And it's like, well, if we are reducing the percentage that the debt represents of our GDP, that's kind of like paying it back. And so that's the US's plan. And so what you're saying is that these countries around the world thought, well, we can never pay this back and there's limits to how fast we can increase our GDP. Yeah. Like we're trying, but that's a lot of that is, is about, you know, like efficiency gains, growth. productivity. So what we can do is let inflation grow a bit and that will reduce the effective value of it. It doesn't work for overseas-based debt, obviously, but it works for local debt, essentially. And, it, and as I say, the classic yep. comment is inflation is taxation without legislation. So it's a way to effectively tax everyone, and especially the poor, because it's the ultimate form of what we call regressive taxation. Uh, and generally, the rich not rich don't so much benefit yep. from inflation, but the rich are largely hedged against inflation. Because you look at inflation, it often... Yeah, yeah, it often can hits, work around it. Uh, the poorest, the rich can generally buy assets that, that go up with inflation. So house prices classically go up with inflation. So if you own a house, it generally sort of matches inflation, if not more in the long term. But we can also say it hits the poorest because inflation will drive up the rate of asset growth to match the inflation, but Absolutely. wages growth usually doesn't keep up with inflation. And so people that are relying on earning money do worse than people that rely on money they already own. Or another way to say it is, the society we live in is called capitalism, not laborism. And so labor does not get you a lot in our society, but capital certainly does. And on that note, we'll move on to our next story, just after a quick break on the rise and fall of Culture Kings. Adi, I imagine you're a big-time property investor? I'm the opposite to a big-time property investor. I know how to grow businesses. I'm, I'm good with startups. I'm good with growth businesses. I can buy listed equities. I can invest in funds. But um, I'm definitely not very sophisticated when it comes to property investment, I regret to inform you. I hear you. There's only so many things you can be expert in, and most people who invest in property are really flying blind. That's where performance property comes into it. They're a high-end property advisory firm who work with some of Australia's smartest investors. Performance Property will help you strategically grow your portfolio, utilize data sets, and make sure you're not overpaying. They even conduct detailed due diligence and even help with existing assets. They essentially make buying property as easy as buying a BHP share. If you've got more than $500,000 in equity to invest and are looking to build a multi-million dollar portfolio, give Performance Property a call on 03-8539-0300 or visit their website at performanceproperty.com.au. For our second story, we're talking about the rise and quick fall of cult Australian retailer, Culture Kings. Culture Kings was founded by a Queensland couple, Simon and Tani Beard, 
and was sold for $600 million in cash and script to US business, aka brands, in March 2021, in one of the most brilliantly timed sales of the past decade. Two years later, the business had been written down to zero, meaning it's worth nothing at all. But the Beards shrewdly took $260 million in cash alongside $340 million in now almost worthless AKA shares. AKA shares have themselves dropped about 90% since their recent highs. The Culture King's business itself saw sales drop 30% in the last year, while the business was forced to undertake significant discounting to move stock. Simon Tunney stepped down from Culture Kings earlier this year, and they now sit alongside the founders of Afterpay and Adore as some of Australia's most successful business stories. Adir, did the fall of Culture Kings surprise you? It's hard to know where this is in the broader cycle of business because Culture Kings is a very specific kind of retailer. It is a retailer that turns over stock extremely quickly. They sell predominantly apparel that is uh, focused on being cool and they sell other people's stuff predominantly, although I'll get to that because IKEA brands change that a little bit. Um, And so if you wanted to pick a retailer that was most susceptible to a change in consumer discretionary spending, it would be hard to pick a better one than this one. And I think what we might be seeing here is a low point in this particular business's performance as a kind of business. And so, you know, when we say the business has fallen, you know, like life is um, cyclical and business is cyclical. And what we might be seeing now is a low point in this business. And the reason I also say, so they've done one thing that's very interesting. So this particular business, when it was bought by AKA Brands, AKA Brands has their own brand called MNML, which I assume is pronounced minimal, which is very popular with NBA and NFL athletes in the US. And they started, I don't want to say stuffing that product into Culture Kings, but they started selling it through Culture Kings. Culture Kings opened a store in Vegas. The store in Vegas has been tremendously successful and selling this minimal brand through Culture Kings has been tremendously successful. So there are positives in this story. Definitely one of the positives is the fact that the founders took $260 million of cash off the table. And when I've seen interviews with them about this whole situation, I have to say, I've been very impressed by the way they've responded. They've been sanguine. They haven't been arrogant. You know, sometimes you get founders when valuations fall and they're very disparaging of the idea of valuation or disparaging towards the journalist that's asking the question. I think they've behaved very maturely in the way they've responded to this. And frankly, $260 million is a ton of money. It's an insane amount of money. And I'm not sure what tax they paid because I'm not sure what the tax treatment of the other half of the pay they got in stock was. Like To be a bit technical, I'm not sure if you can get rollover relief when you take mm, US listed stock for um, Australian stock because, because also you need to be – I can't remember the number. I think you need to be taking 80%. It's called script for script, so taking stock, other stock for your stock. I think under – Australian taxation law, it might need to be something like 80% in order to get rollover relief. And rollover relief means you don't have to pay capital gains tax at the point of the transaction. You have to pay it when you eventually touch money. So they might have had a pretty severe tax bill on the 260 mil, but let's say they had half a 50% tax bill on the 260 mil. Like, who cares? They have $130 million of cash and then they can write down the rest as tax losses in future. 
So I think they did exceptionally well. Are you saying that they didn't, if they didn't get roll, obviously they didn't get rollover relief on the 260, but did they get rollover relief on the 340, which is the AKA script? If they didn't get rollover relief on that, that's a real problem. That means they're paying $150 million roughly in tax potentially for, for script that's gone to zero essentially. Yeah. So of the two, that means they've lost two thirds of it. Well, so hopefully that hasn't yeah. happened because I actually really like them. Um, well, we can do, well, we can talk in a bit of um, slight detail on this, okay? So let's we can divide it into two payments: two sixty cash, and th- was it yep, three forty yep. of script, right? AUD, and so they're not paying fifty percent tax. It's a capital gain. They're going to get a discount. They're going to pay twenty five percent. Yeah, I counted twenty five so, on the six hundred, so that's one hundred and fifty. A quarter of the six hundred is one fifty. Assume that didn't get rollover. No, you're right. Yeah, you're right. So I think that would be their worst case scenario. I don't know. Like this is the domain. Uh, what I can tell you is this. A $600 million transaction with this level of complexity, it would have had a lot of tax lawyers and accountants working on it. But I think that there is a possibility that they would have had to pay some tax at the time of the transaction on the script they received in AKA brands. But my point to you is this. Let's say they had to pay 25% tax on the whole chunk, $150 million AUD. Yeah. They got $260 million AUD in cash. Yeah. They're still sitting on $110 sure. million dollars of post-tax, plus tax they'll losses. get tax losses yeah. for the remainder yeah. of it, which it will, might take them a while to be able to draw down on, but um, but that, that's the truth of the matter. And so, you know, I think these are very complicated transactions. The bigger picture for me is this. If you look at AKA brands more broadly, they've just released their third quarter results, which is, a cal- which is uh, I think, to November possibly. And... Um, or to October it probably is. And and so what you see in those results is that in Australia, they fell 30%. In the US, they were pretty flat. And so what we're seeing is that consumer discretionary spending in Australia is performing much more poorly than consumer discretionary spending in the US. I think that's a very interesting point for retail going on in this country. It might not be true for, you know, we spoke to Courtney with the flowers, the Daily Bloom's flowers business and candles. Like, it might not be true for a business like that, but for pure discretionary spend businesses like Culture Kings, I think Australia is looking worse, much worse than the US at this point in time. The flip side is they bought another Australian business called Princess Polly. That business was- I didn't realize. Yep, they own Princess Polly. That business was sold to private equity in 2018. It was doing 10 to $15 million of earnings at that time. Presumably, it was doing significantly more when AKA Brands bought it. That business has just opened a store in the US and has gone to a multi-channel retailer. They've opened it in a Westfield in LA. And that business seems to be performing strongly. So what we're seeing here is a real you know, tale of many cities, we could call it, on you know, the performance of retail is very specific now to the nature of the particular retail category and the geography in which it's operating. I'm not sure that US versus Australian comparison is necessarily right here because the, the Australian business is Culture Kings. The US business is AKA. So one's, one's a lowish margin business. One's a highish margin business. Uh, I think the US is probably slightly outperforming Australia, but not to that extent. I think that, that result's been highly clouded by the frankly, pretty ordinary performance of Culture Kings. No, but I'm telling you top line, not numbers, not gross profit numbers, not earnings numbers, top line, Australia is down no, 30%. No, I get it. I get it. The but I, think, I, don't, I just don't think that's a reflection on Australia versus you. I think that's a reflection on the Culture Kings business versus the legacy AKA business. I mean, that's what it's reflected. Culture Kings isn't really existing in the US. No, you could be. 
you could be right about that. So let's say the quantum is not right, but I do think that you saw another retailer come out. I actually can't remember who it is and say that Australian discretionary spending, it, pure discretionary, is particularly hard globally at the moment. I, I wish I could remember who the retailer was. They bought an Australian business and, um, oh, it's the owner of the global owner of the bonds business, the, you know, the bonds underwear business. business. Yeah. I don't know who the global owner of that business. Yeah. And so the global owner said Australia is particularly difficult. Now, I don't know why they call that a discretion, consumer discretionary business, but maybe people can have some flexibility on which underwear they buy and when they decide to buy it. But they yeah, said I think a, bonds is probably a fairly expensive. It's not. It's not step one style expensive, but it's it's more expensive than others. It's brand. So they've said that um, Australia is particularly difficult globally on a pure discretionary spend basis. The other thing, you know, I'll tell you some things about AKEA brands that I think is interesting. So their gross margin across their business is fifty five percent. This is a business that this year is forecast to make more than half a billion US dollars in revenue. They're going to keep almost none of it. Mm. Like it's it's a business that struggles yeah. to generate profits, but um, they're only worth a hundred million dollars today. Now they've got a hundred mil of debt, a hundred mil of inventory. They they've got twenty mil of cash. They've got some payables. Like it's not the simplest balance sheet, and there's some big numbers on the balance sheet. But when you go through. And again, so what they've been doing in the last six months, or maybe even longer, is they've been selling down their inventory to generate free cash, and then trying to use their cash to pay down their debts. They're probably under some pressure from the lenders on covenants, right? But if you look at this business today, and you just, you know, ran through the balance sheet and kind of what I would call sanitize the balance sheet, so figure out what you think you can get for the stock, the cash is worth a dollar, the debt is probably a dollar, work it out. I think you'd be paying almost nothing for this operating business at its current market cap, which is a pretty remarkable situation. And like the end of my long soliloquy about retail is, and by the way, they're only spending, you know, 12 or 13% of their revenue on marketing, which is pretty good. Although the stores are effectively a marketing channel as well, in my view, the problem is their general operating expenses is 17 or 18%. So that's where, that's what's too high. But my view is, Globally in retail at the moment, and this includes Australia, there are a significant number of businesses that are trading at valuations where that are either ridiculously low or you're essentially getting the, the operating business for free. I think retail is a very interesting investing sector at the moment globally. I think part of the reason that AK is effectively valued at zero is because I think people think it won't survive. 20 million, it's cash drop from 46 to 20. There's a pretty thin buffer there. So I think there's just a insolvency risk hanging over the business, which is why the valuation so impacted. I know, but if you went into that business, 550 to 600 mil USD revenue forecast for this year, we already had three quarters done, it's probably going to hit the numbers. You know, you would figure out a way, if you had to, to generate free cash out of that business. It is a big top line. Some of that business has got to be performing well. They don't break out much in the quarterly results, so I can't really talk more about that. And the last full year or half year, it's probably quite different to the current trading. But I think if you've got a $550 to $600 million top line with a 55% gross margin, that includes um, things like Culture Kings, which I think you're right, has a significantly lower gross margin. I think you can figure out how to make money out of that business. I would say they've still got another 90 mil of goodwill sitting on the balance sheet, but they've written down the vast majority, the majority, I think, of the goodwill that they picked up through COVID. And so, like, I actually think this is 
a, you know, you could you could have people on both sides of the ledger on this business. There would be some people that would say it's a screaming bargain and they should pile into it, and there would be some people that say it's going to go broke. They should short it. I think it's going to be a very interesting business to watch. I think, what it does, I think that's months. right. I think what it does show as well is just what I, I never understood the culture. I'm a fine, big fan of Simon and Tony, like yourself. I think they're really good operators. And Paul Greenberg was very involved in that business. Oh, was he? I didn't know Paul was. Doesn't surprise me. Um, Paul is involved in everything. He is involved in everything. But I never. <laughs> I always found. I remember there was one on the corner of Flinders and Queen Street, I think, in Melbourne. Yep. I always wondered how on earth these guys, because the rent would have been huge on that in that, in that space, uh, and they've got all this space, mm. and obviously huge fit out costs, and they're selling sort of this American stuff that obviously I'd never buy. Uh, I never understood how these businesses remained in business, and usually, <laughs> usually when I think that, inevitably the business goes bust, and the Culture Kings actually is a bankrupt business now, and it's all, and it's probably going to take AKA down and. Simon Tani have done incredibly well. And there is – your point's right, and they're very humble. And it's a great – the ability to sell a business at its peak is such a rare ability because you obviously get you get caught up in your, in the emotion of it. You think you're invincible if you're running this great business. And for, for Simon and Tani to be that humble and that aware to – and I think the Afterpay guys are really similar – to be able to sell at the peak and ignore the hubris and ignore everything that comes around it and everybody – the, everybody, the, idol, the idolatry that surrounds you and you're flying like that, to be able to sell is is an unbelievable skill and they deserve great credit for selling what they did. Like the business is now worthless and they've got somewhere between 100 and $260 million. I'm not sure about the tax situation, but they've executed perfectly and AKA, have, have made, this, this acquisition probably will bankrupt them. If not, probably there's a fair chance. Well, so we just so there you go. We disagree on this. It looks worthless on paper, the Culture Kings business, but that's also because if you're going to write down a significant portion of it, and your auditors agree that you can write down more of it, then you might as well write down as much as you possibly can. And here they've been able to write off all of it. So I think that's more of an accounting decision from AKA. So I don't think Culture Kings is worthless. I tell you what I mean by that. If they offered to sell me Culture Kings, let's say they say you can have it for free or you can have it for next to nothing, I think that you know you have to figure out what losses you're going to wear until the market turns. I wouldn't want it. You could say, Adam, you can have that business. I'd say no, thank you. Interesting. And uh, look, I'm not, and I'm not being. Yes, you might be right about that. I, I don't think that, but you might be right. I personally don't think it's going to take down AKA brands. I think there's lots of. Firstly, I think even with them, AKA brands is primed to survive. It, a lot of it depends on their lenders that have lent them yeah. $100 million and what their lenders say and how long. You can't keep selling down yeah. inventory forever and using the cash to pay down the debt. But I think they could always jettison the business entirely. They could probably find someone to pay something for it, at least take them off their hands. I think it would be uh, a very unfortunate outcome and probably bad management from here for AKA brands to be taken down. That's my personal view on that. Well, time will tell on who is right on that one. And we'll take another really quick break and be back with our final story on Google and Apple. Adir, what's your experience been with SEO across all the businesses you've worked with? Well, I actually had an agency that did SEO at one point in time. And so through that, I, I was not the SEO guy. And through that, I got some insight into just how um, complicated and sophisticated SEO is. And since then, I've tried a variety of different people and solutions. And it's a bit of a mix and match for me. I don't have a very sharp answer for you on that. We're the same. We, I reckon we've cycled through a dozen agencies before we discovered Portal Ventures. And these guys are the real deal. 
We've actually used them at Luxury Escapes and our SEO traffic has jumped dramatically. We also use them in a business called Bookwell, which I used to chair. And the SEO there was so good, we actually were able to sell the business to the global leader, almost purely based on how much organic traffic we had from SEO. The guys at Portal Ventures work with some of the best Australian marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, including Flipper, Programmer, Mad Paws, Camplify, and Autoguru. These guys are literally the best of the best. Exclusive to Contrarians listeners, the team at Portal will give you a free one-hour consultation if you mention Contrarians. To get in touch with Mike and the team, call them on 1300 121 261 or go to www.portal.ventures. And we're back for our final story. We're talking about the massive case being brought by the Department of Justice in the US against Google. The DOJ are claiming that Google, which has a 90% share of the search market, has paid billions of dollars to companies like Apple and makes it impossible for rivals to compete. The core of the case is that when you search for something on Safari or Firefox, ask Siri a question, or type something into a search widget on your Samsung phone, Google is powering that search. And while users technically can change their settings, the DOJ claims that most people don't know how, which creates an exclusionary barrier to entry. While Google claims that the reason that Apple and other companies use its search engine is due to superior technology, it was actually revealed in the trial by one of Google's own witnesses that it pays Apple a huge 36% of ad revenue for searches made on Safari. The DOJ claims that figure is more than $10 billion US each year. A dear Google once famously claimed, don't be evil. Is that claim officially dead, buried, and cremated? <laughs> I can't believe you're quoting Tony Abbott. Um, I, I don't really understand what's wrong with this. What's wrong with this? Basically, they're doing a deal that says, we're going to be your partner for something, and we're going to try and do a long-term deal. These kind of deals happen all day, every day. It's, this is just called a business partnership. Like, what's the problem I thought, here? I thought you were meant to be the lefty in, in, this, in this podcast. Well, what's wrong here is that you can't create monopolies, and monopolies end up ripping off consumers. And what Google's essentially done is create a monopoly in one of the most important categories of commerce, which is search. So I think, um, and they say Google has 90%. I think that's probably concerned. I think Google probably has like 98% of the search market. Whoever uses, uh, we advertise almost nothing on Bing. I'm not sure what else there is. No, I get it. They're very dominant and they're trying to maintain their, their dominance or monopoly. But do you know how the ticketing industry works? Like a ticketing business like Live Nation or Ticker Tech or whatever it is goes around and they make deals with venues, venues, not artists. And anything that happens at that venue exclusively gets ticketed through that company. And so your argument is going to be, yeah, but there's five of these companies or three of these ticketing companies, not one. But fundamentally, that deal that I've just described, a deal of a ticketer with a venue, is not different in substance to the deal that Google has signed with Apple. The only difference is that there's no other Google to sign these deals. But what would be the alternative if Google had not signed this deal with Apple? So maybe I'll ask this question to you in two parts. One, what would have happened if Google wouldn't have signed this deal with Apple? Like what would a consumer behavior be? And two is, how hard is it for consumers to still use something other than Google if they're using Safari? What's the answer to those two questions? I think your first question is a really important one and it's the right question. Uh, and I think the reason why it's so important is when you've got a company like Google that has such a – it's rare you see a company with this kind of monopoly. And I think the contrast to the ticket one – let me just draw a couple of 
the difference with the ticket situation. So one, yes, there's there's two or three ticket companies competing for that, that key money. So if you're talking about the SCG or the MCG or whatever, there's multiple businesses fairly equally competing, whether it's Ticketmaster, Ticket Tech, whatever, they're pretty equally competing for that, as opposed to Google and Bing aren't equally competing for anything. So there's, there's pretty equal competition. And also there's, there's an argument that it's impractical to have more than one ticketing agent for each venue because it would be really hard for Taylor. It's hard enough to have Taylor Swift to sell through just one. If you're selling through multiple, it would be almost impossible. So I think practically speaking, it's really hard to have multiple ticket agencies. So I think the comparison there probably is flawed in a couple of ways. But the artist, but you could have let the artist choose their partnership. Like well, the artist choose, choose, the artist chooses the venue. But so I don't want to get in a, in a sense choosing that. Yeah. I, well, I don't want to get hung up on this. I think your points are good. I, that's, and that's irrelevant. I think going. the key question is, you say, well, if Google wasn't paying Apple, what would happen? Now that's that's the, the important question to ask. So what would happen is you'd have either Bing or Firefox or some other upstart come in. Uh, or you'd have Apple creating their own search engine, which they were actually looking at doing at one point but didn't. So what would then happen is you'd have multiple search engines competing properly. At the moment, you don't. So if you did have that, you wouldn't have Google creating what's called the Google tax on business. So you and I both run businesses, in your case, multiple businesses that effectively tax by Google. So every time a business starts doing well, Google just taxes more and increases the price. So Barry Diller, Barry Diller, who's the famous American businessman who ran, owned sort of his IAC brands, owned Expedia and Tinder and all this stuff. And as part of the case, I think it's this case, Diller um, was one of Diller's, uh, I think it was one of the Expedia businesses sent a message to Google. And essentially the content of the message was, over the last five years, our cost per click has essentially gone up fivefold. So Google has basically gone from charging $60 million a year to $300 million a year to this business for no better result. So as soon as your business performs better, Google just taxes you more. It's the ultimate it's the ultimate tax on every single business from startup to scaled up enterprise business. But why why do you call it a why do you call it a tax? So let me tell you something. I um I pay for the tax because that's because it's a monopoly. So when you're a monopoly you can create tax. And that's what Google has been able to create. So like I pay for YouTube Premium, you'll be unsurprised to hear. And the price of YouTube Premium in Australia, I just saw an email that they're increasing the price from $30 a month to $42 a month. It's a pretty big increase. It actually looks worse because I think it's yeah. $29.99 a month to $42. It feels terrible. Yeah. Now, that's, that's Google. That's a part of Google. But that's not a Google tax, right? You don't call that a Google tax. You call that supply and demand in a marketplace, correct? I do. So you call yeah, this a Google another, tax another because YouTube has competitors. Yeah, because if I want to go and get intent-based um, prospective customers that are searching, I have to pay Google. And but so what if Google increased? Absolutely. But what if Google increased the cost of, um, of your search keywords by by one hundred x? Or let's even be yeah, a hundred x. What if they increase the cost? You would stop advertising on Google. You wouldn't pay 100x. For your- so there's definitely some price elasticity, even though they're a monopoly. And so once you establish that there is some price elasticity, even though they're a monopoly, then what you're saying is there is an element of supply and demand in the market. So maybe some of it is what you call a tax. Some of it is supply and demand. My bigger question is this. Like That's why I a bit object to it. Like Basically, I, I think I agree with 99% of what you're saying. Like I'm kind of just arguing the 1% of what you're saying. But I, <laughs> yeah. but I do think this. Google is worth, is it a trillion dollars? I don't know what they're worth today. It's, it's, it's more than, that. More than yeah. a trillion. Okay. So I'm going to round it to a trillion. 
because that's an easy number, all right? It's a lot of zeros. It's 1.7 US, so call it $2 trillion. $2 trillion. Now, but I'm going to keep it in US. $2, $2 trillion. Now, they're paying Apple $10 billion a year. Is that right? Is that what you said? $10 billion a year. Now- Up 10, 10 to 18. Okay, $20 billion. That's, that's I'm going to use numbers profit, that are easy. Yeah. $20 billion a year. So they're paying Google, so they're paying Apple 1% of their market cap. That's what they're paying them. Ballpark. Twenty billion, two trillion, one percent. Don't you think if Apple really believed that they could build a search business, and by the way, Apple is not averse to monopolies, I think you might have noticed. And so if Apple really thought they could build a very powerful search business that was any significant percentage of the size of Google, 30% the size of Google, they would not take one percent of Google's market cap to stop them doing that. And so I think what Apple, the message Apple is sending to the market, market caps, market caps, what you, you, Google makes about three hundred billion. No, but in the reason so I'm paying I know, but, upwards of almost ten percent of that profit, which is a lot. No, I'm not more talking about what Google is paying. I'm talking about the opportunity cost that Apple is giving up by not building it themselves. So they're not giving up the Google opportunity cost because like that's the market leader. They're not going to build a two trillion dollar business, but maybe they're going to build a five hundred billion dollar business. They're taking $10 billion. If they really thought they could build a $500 billion business in value by running a search business themselves, they would not take Google's $10 billion a year not to do it. And so what Apple is saying to the market is they are saying, we do not believe that we can compete effectively with Google, even on our own closed platform. So it's better for us to just take the 10 to $20 billion a year cash than try to compete. Well, why are they no, why are they sure taking right. the money in, instead of trying to build it? I, I think I think what I think Apple's saying because they're saying, well, we can make ten billion without doing anything, no extra work. Why bother? I can focus on other stuff. I can focus on like so that, and that and the problem is why bother? Because it's fifty to five. What's three Apple point, worth? Three point five, probably three, two three trillion. Well, right? This, no, more. Okay, so three trillion. So building a $500 billion business would be material. Let's say $600 billion, we'll use round numbers. It would add 20% to the size. No, but look at Apple's Apple's multiple is, is I don't know, 18 or 20 times. So at 10 billion times that multiple, they, they're, kind of, they're kind of separate as parapets. The only person, Apple and Google are, are fine. They're, Apple and Google are commercial beasts. I see what you're saying. All right, but we should explain that because that's a good – because you, you just made this point very quickly, but it's a very smart point, so we should explain it. So Apple, so what you're saying is, I'm saying maybe they could build a $500 billion business with a lot of work and some luck, and you're saying, yeah, but they're taking $20 billion and they're getting, like, let's say, a 15 to 20 times multiple anyway on their earnings, and that 20 bill goes straight to earnings. So they're probably getting a few hundred billion dollars in market cap anyway just by taking this money without having to do anything. I think that is a very good point that you've just made. Well, actually, the numbers are pretty much exactly what you said. So Apple's got a 31 PE multiple. Let's say it's $15 billion Google's paying, which is called the mid-range of the estimates. That's $450 billion in market value going to Apple as a result of this deal. And that money and that market value is coming from customers. And Google obviously benefits as well. So Google, Apple and Google are two incredibly smart businesses run by very incredibly capable people. So they've obviously made a commercial deal that they both benefit from. And this is why the DOJ are doing this. DOJ aren't, DOJ aren't fools either. The, the, the person who loses here is the advertiser and the consumer. And eventually it's the consumer who pays at the end of the day. So this is Google in every every part. I think it's the advertiser, the advertiser who loses. The advertiser often passes it on to the consumer. consumer. In this case. Yeah. 
Well, I don't think they do. I, I don't think they do with this. I think Barry Diller or you or me, we do not get to have this increase in price because of the increase yeah, in our cost true. on Google because we've got price elasticity yeah. problems yeah. And, in and, our and, businesses. And, that's the, and the problem is, and why Google's so, so smart, think, and you made this point before, is what are the alternatives to Google? Yes, there are, there are absolutely alternatives. You can advertise on so, Meta. Facebook is, is the classic alternative. But then you've got, obviously, newspapers, radio, TV. There's lots of other alternatives to Google. thing is, Google are super smart. Google price, effectively price their advertising, so it's just under everybody else. So if everything else is a CPA or cost of acquisition of Three hundred dollars. I'm making up a number. Google priced at two ninety nine, and they'll keep pushing up their CPA. So as Google becomes better and better, at what they do. So now, if you go to Google, remember Google used to have basically just organic search results on a page, so it was all natural stuff. Now it's mostly ads on the page when you do a search. What a million years ago? You mean in like seventy, like two thousand ten or whatever it was, BC or something? Two thousand eight. All right. Uh, and they obviously, and every year they put more and more ads on. So it's a worse customer experience for Google. Ultimately, the person who suffers there so they're getting more and more ad revenue but the businesses aren't getting it i'm not getting you and i aren't getting cheaper ad rates from the for more inventory we're getting more expensive no, ad rates, and the consumer's worse off google's making lots more money so google wins at every turn i talked about don't be evil before remember google google's when they listed well i don't know if this is a it's not evil but i'm going to well, characterize google's, google's own, deal with apple like this google's own catchphrase but i don't think they removed it they took it away so they admitted they're evil but i don't think this is how I characterize this deal in one or two sentences. And then this is why I say I'm not sure it's evil, okay? Google has gone to Apple and said this. We know that you might be tempted to build your own search business inside your walled garden, effectively. We are going to pay you an amount of money in cash to let us have that business. And that amount of money will compensate you for the value that you could have created by building your own business in that search category. And that is the deal that Google has effectively done. That's not done the issue, though. That, that, that deal itself, no, the but problem- But that's the deal. That's the deal that I've just that's said. That's not the issue. That's that, the that, deal. I, I don't have a huge issue with that deal. The issue I have is what that deal does is it stops Bing, that's who's probably the, the, the only real competitor of Google at the moment, stops Bing from going to Apple and saying, or Microsoft being saying, please use us instead. We can pay you- Seven billion instead of ten billion, or whatever it is, and instead of having you and I as advertisers having two genuine competitors pushing the price down of ads, we've got Google dominating, pushing the price up. It kills any form of competition. So, and it's not just Bing. There's any. There could be a hundred startups who would otherwise form. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But the thing is this: uh, like you are now making an argument that says the Department of Justice should be running a case because. Microsoft is the unfair recipient of antitrust Absolutely. behavior. Like, this is the biggest flip since two th- in 2000. Like, the part of the trigger for the whole dot-com crash was Absolutely. the DOJ case was against antitrust against Microsoft. And now, and so my, yeah, and so my, my flip, my th- comment about this is you're probably right in your support of the DOJ on this, but the caveats are, um, Microsoft could go and just pay more if they needed to. Like this is their they're like making free cash that is insane. And actually, them building a, a proper search business would have a significant contribution to their market cap because they don't have a proper search business. Their business is largely growing on the back of Azure on cloud stuff, right? Which is, by the way, another topic we should talk about at some time. But I think the bigger issue is innovation comes from startups largely. That is where most innovation is driven from. 
And by shutting down this market, you are not allowing new startups to pop up. They might be innovating two or three features that are vastly better than the the features that the incumbent is offering. Nobody's going to give them a try. And so I think the DOJ, their laser focus across the economy, which by the way, this is what I'm about to describe. You know, this is not capitalism. This is trying to reverse some of the aspects of capitalism because capitalism, when the machine runs well, over time it produces monopolies. That's what capitalism does. But so we have to try and fight against capitalism. And what we should do is always create green fields for new startups to be able to sprout with new innovations that they bring to market that benefit the consumer. And where capitalism breaks down, and this is why uh, even ardent capitalists support antitrust, is when a company gets, and the classic was Rockefeller Standard Oil, AT&T is another one. And when a company gets to the point where it's so dominant, it's bad for it's bad for consumers. It's actually often generally bad for stockholders in that company as well. And usually the biggest beneficiaries of a breakup are shareholders because you split AT and T into mini bells and have multiples of the valuation. So you know who doesn't like when companies get bro- broken up? There's only one one cohort that doesn't like companies being broken up. The company that's being broken up. The executives <laughs> at the company that's broken up because they got the private jets yes, and they have big yep. remuneration. And what's yeah. the one basis that the executives are paid? It's really it's dependent on one thing and one thing only really: market value. So the bigger the business, the more yeah, people get paid. Yeah. So executives yeah. hate it. Everyone else no, likes it. No, that's true. You're so right. the consumers You're right. love it. You're right. Uh, suppliers love it. Uh, shareholders love it. Everyone loves it except for the executives. But you know what you're advocating? Well, I know you know this, but we should just be open about this. I always say this. What I'm going to say now, I say to Americans, and they basically choke on whatever they're drinking at the time. But what you're advocating is socialism. Like, So in a, in a natural capitalist, pure capitalism, what you get is cartels. They make sense. Cartels, price fix. They make lots of sense. Monopolies, of course, because as you get bigger, you should eat things that are smaller and just keep growing. And a whole lot, and you know, there's a whole lot of other things as well. Like even the fact that we have laws that present prevent misleading and deceptive conduct and misleading advertising against consumers. Like capitalism doesn't really have a problem with those kind of things. And so because the the argument in a capitalist society would be pure capitalism would be, yeah, you can do misleading advertising, but people will catch on eventually and you'll go out of business and you don't care about the people that get like shafted in the meantime. And so the the message that we are we are both advocates of is that um, you cannot let capitalism run rampant because ultimately what you'll end up with, this is my words, I'm not sure if you agree, but I think ultimately what you'll end up with is something that is analogous to feudalism now, maybe the serfs will not be as bad as they were, but they might be. And yeah, it won't be called feudalism. It will be called capitalism. But you'll just get the next revolution because people won't be able to tolerate being that poor and living that badly in society. So, you know, I think these um, handbrakes on capitalism or maybe, you know, the most popular phrase now, guardrails, these guardrails on capitalism that keep it on track, you know, technically they're elements of socialism. We don't have to say that because we don't want the Americans to freak out, but like, I think they're really important in the longevity of our society. I think you're right in theory, but wrong in practice when you compare it to socialism. I think if you look at the problems with socialism, is socialism is an inherent monopoly, but government monopoly. Everything's run by the government. So yes, capitalism in a in a sort of pure form maybe becomes a bunch of big businesses, almost like Japan, where you've got those big groups. But I think I think yeah, or Korea. Or Korea I think most, you mean. Generally, generally, most capitalists believe in competition. So most capitalists support a strong Department of Justice or ACCC in many cases. So uh, I think calling breaking up a big business socialist is probably not right because in reality, 
raw capitalism is, is competition, is startups, is not big, big business. I don't think that's capitalism. Well, it's the end result. Like, so I'm not saying that um, it's socialism like we should move to socialism. Like, Obviously, I'm not a believer in that. But what I'm saying is you know, there were these ideas that said if we just let capitalism run freely, which was like the US during the time of the robber barons, capitalism was pretty much running freely – it just cre- it, that does not create a better society for most people. And like, I know you're going to wind me up on this. And so, listen, again, I, I agree with you that it's not socialism, but they are elements that are modifying capitalism. And when you say most capitalists believe X, that is because most people in our society that believe in free markets are not pure capitalists because they understand the excesses that pure capitalism delivers. And I would just disagree with you and say capitalism – encourages competition in the early phases of capitalism. But when you let it run over time, you end up with monopolies in every industry. And that is, you know, obviously not what is going to create longevity for a happy, you know, Western liberal values society. I think that's why almost every developed country has a DOJ or an ACCC, which prevents that. So I think the governments are aware of this, and that's why we, we should be kicking home the DOJ in this case. If you think of a couple of things that Google does, and let's go back to the Google sort of specifics, and this isn't what the case is about, but one one instance of Google is, remember Google historically didn't, you could own the trademark, so you could own the trademark to Catapult Sports or Luxury Escapes, and Google would let somebody else advertise on that tra- on that mark. Like you can't advertise in certain ways, but you're at a, If mm-hmm. someone types in catapult sports, I can then put another ad for ca- another business for cat- your competitor, and you can't stop it. Google wants because Google wants the money. So and they get the money two ways. They get the money from the competitor advertising. They get the money by charging you guys to also advertise on your own brand. So Google effectively, and I wrote an article about yes. this about seven years ago. I called Google the world's biggest standover man. Uh, they effectively are the mafia times a billion because <laughs> they basically say, unless you pay us for your own brand, I'm going to let anybody else advertise and steal, steal your customers because well, I don't care. So they do that. It doesn't matter if you own a trademark. So they're completely. But that's still the case. That's still the case, but with the slight, um, they've, they've, they've tempered it slightly, which is if somebody advertises on your brand term, is passing themselves off as being your brand, then they'll stop them. But definitely somebody can advertise, like Daily Blooms is a good example. A competitor can advertise and say, do you want Daily Blooms every day and use those words as common language? They can do that. They just can't advertise and say, come and buy from Daily Blooms and then link to a different site. But you're right. Like You have to spend lots of money on advertising on your own branded search to be sitting above your competitors advertising on your own trademarked terms. And no other form of – if you put an ad – you couldn't go to the radio station and put an ad for uh, – come to Daily Blooms for uh, – the best Daily Blooms, by the way, my business is called – uh, John's Flowers. You couldn't. You couldn't do that on any other. No other media organization lets you do that, other than Google, yeah. who, again, effectively the world's biggest standover man. They also but, the other thing they do, and this was uh, found out recently because we we discovered it inherently, but but it's been confirmed is if you don't place ads, which are called SEM, so search engine marketing. If you don't place SEM ads, you lose what's called SEO. So you lose your organic play. So what I mean by that is, and for, for listeners, some listeners will be well aware of this, others might not be, but there's effectively two forms of search marketing. There's organic marketing and there's search engine marketing. So organic is if you type in luxury escapes and it just comes up without an ad because we've got good SEO. And there's SEM, of course, where you pay for it. Because Google would say, Google would say, 
when we produce results, the yeah. unpaid search results, what we're trying to do as Google is show the most yeah. relevant results to the um, searcher. And what you would say is, yeah, well, of course, luxury escapes coming up on luxury escapes is a very relevant result to the person searching. But luxury escapes coming up on if I search get a the, get a good hotel deal, yeah. luxury escapes is probably also a really good result to come up on that search as well. Very relevant. Yeah, and what, so what Google do is they say is well, if you're paying us lots of money for SEM, we'll rank you high on SEO. So they basically treat SEO, which is used to be just the best, most appropriate page, and this is what Google was built on, and it used to be just organic, and then they become more and more commercialized, and to the point where so to what end? Sergey and Larry are worth $100 billion each. and But they don't admit that. What you've just said. No, of course they don't admit any of this Google does not admit to it. In fact, they deny it. Uh, but I think it was revealed. They deny. It, it, was, that it absolutely spending... was revealed uh, in months okay. ago in, in some sort of case. Yeah, so I'm not saying that the data does not support what you're saying. I think lots of data does support what you're saying. But I'm saying publicly, Google's argument is, the way that we rank search results to try and just be the give, provide the most relevant result is not impacted by how much you spend with us. And what you're saying is there is good data that people have produced that completely refutes that argument. And in fact, your individual experience with this refutes that argument. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think so- that, the, you know, the, I'm totally supportive of your view that Google is too powerful, that Google. Um, it, we, they can be extortionate with their search costs if they want to. There is no transparency on how the pricing works. So, for example, if I'm competing against you for a term, you pay $1 and I pay $4, I should get that term for $1.01 subject to some other quality scores. But we think maybe Google is charging me $3 for that click, not $1.01. There's no transparency. That's because Google owns... That's because Google yeah, they owns don't both see. sides of that market. That's, like, that's like the so dark that. pools that exist in the stock market or like, you know, yeah. what we were talking about with some of the um, Robin Hood stuff. Yeah, there's no transparency on whether – so what I just described is a Dutch auction, isn't it, where I win by yeah. paying one cent more than what yeah. you bid. Well, we, there's no transparency on that in Google. So there should be. There should be transparency. Yeah. Now, I think me worked up things, about this, Adam. I have. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I, I think the three <laughs> things that – I would do if I was the DOJ, if I was a legislator in the US. I think one is they shouldn't be allowed to, this whole Apple thing just shouldn't be allowed. And it's not just Apple, they shouldn't be allowed. I don't think Google should be allowed to be default search on anything. I think it should take it completely away, other than maybe Android, which they own. Uh, so Samsung, all this other stuff, they shouldn't be allowed to be a default search engine on. Although Microsoft got stopped in 2000 and something, Microsoft got stopped preloading. From being, that was the whole DOJ case. Yeah, they stopped. Then they could not be the default yep. web browser That's on true. their own That's software. Uh, I think number two is I think YouTube should be spun off, forced to spun off. I think if and Scott Galloway makes a, this really good point. He basically says if YouTube was spun off tomorrow, what would happen is within a week, the CEO of YouTube, which isn't owned by Google anymore, Alphabet anymore, will go, hmm, maybe I'll just start a search business. And what does Google do the next day? Maybe I'll start a video business. Suddenly you've got. Two people competing in search, two people competing in video, or three people competing in search. So suddenly you've got multiple competitors as opposed now you've got multiple monopolies. YouTube's absolutely dominant and Google's clearly dominant. Uh, and the third thing I think, think they should do is, is not allow people to bid on other people's brand names. I think if you've got a trademark brand name, another company shouldn't be able to bid on it. There are three really obvious steps that would go some way to taking away what's called the Google tax from every single business in the world. What about bidding transparency? 
Yep, and that as well. And, and that can be a fourth thing. So they have to diverse double diverse double click as well, which is there. They effectively create a marketplace. So they, they're the buyer and the seller. So they own everything and nobody knows what the hell is going on. So that's the fourth thing they should do, which would destroy the value of Google, but good riddance. Because I think forced divestments are the hardest thing to do in a court, but forcing transparency, that's much easier for a judge to order. And so even if the judge does not force them to divest double click, he or she could force transparency around these things. But I, I largely agree with you that um, big tech in general owns too many parts of the ecosystem and that in itself reduces innovation. And really what we want in a capitalist economy is this idea of creative destruction where big companies are constantly put under pressure by up-and-coming businesses that need to out-innovate the big companies to succeed. That is what drives innovation. Remember I whined to you about this with the common standard of USB and I said, where's the next wave of innovation going to come from? I generally am a believer that you need to encourage creative disruption. Creative creative destruction. Creative destruction is what I'm trying to say. You you have to encourage creative destruction because that is how you get innovation and that is how you get advances in society. I think we agree on this one. So it's uh it's never nice when we agree too wholeheartedly. But uh, you took me there. I'm you glad. took me on a journey to this but, one. Uh, and hopefully something happens with because Google is just a menace. Um, just before we wrap up, just a quick note for me. Um, when we talked about Marley Spoon a couple of weeks ago, uh, well, we talked about food kits a couple of weeks ago, Blue Apron and HelloFresh. I, um, my wife, obviously, who's a, who's a big fan of the show, big fan of you, obviously, less, lesser of me. Um, she was, she goes, oh, I've, I've ordered Marley Spoon because uh, I was of the show. I thought, because oh, you haven't done it for a while. And we got it. We've had a, had a couple of boxes and it's, it's actually really good. It's much better than I remember it. And the, the recipes have improved. The varieties improved. Uh, so I've now become, and thank credit to my wife for, for, for doing it, but become a big Marley Spoon advocate again after not using it for a couple of years. Oh, that's a good. That's a that's a nice story. I do want to say this. This is the Adir hedging <laughs> nice people line that I will use, which is you know we just like like hacked off Google, and I don't know Larry and Sergey, but I do know Mel Silver very well, who runs Google in Australia. In fact, I first met her way back in the day when she was working at ING Direct, and she was a superstar there, and her husband her husband also is a superstar, and um and I you know so I just want to say like. Mel in Australia, the way that she runs Google, I think she's done a very good job of walking the tightrope because it's not an easy job business to run because of the things that we just talked about, right? Like they get a lot of, um, like they get a lot of, I would say, legitimate criticism as a business. And I think she's done a good job of walking that balance. She's been the CEO for a long time now in Australia. And whenever I talk to people about her, you know, their objective, like they don't have a longer relationship with her, but people are consistently positive about, um, the way that she interacts as the CEO of Google in Australia. Well, that's the problem. Everyone who works at Google is super nice because they, they hire really smart, super nice people who deal with people like us. So I, Martin Curtis, who I've worked with a number of years, is an incredible guy. Uh, I don't, there's really no one in Australia at Google who I don't like. Uh, and that's the problem. Like, they're an insidious beast of a company, but they're filled with lovely people, which makes it even worse. Yeah, well, that's smart, right? The the toughest The toughest... Oh, the toughest, most aggressive people in business I have ever met surround themselves with the nicest, most capable people in business. That's a yeah. consistent theme, 100%. Yeah. So we're, we'll wrap up now, but you'll, you'll be back home hopefully for our next episode. I imagine you're leaving Tel Aviv soon. Yeah, I'm leaving in a, in a few days. So yeah, the next one will be recorded 
back face-to-face in Melbourne. So can't wait for that. Thanks again for another great episode. We'll wrap it up there and look forward to seeing you face-to-face next week. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.